This is Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender experience and perspective. I'm Amy Breslow. Each week I invite a different guest to share their personal experiences regarding gender and gender issues. When I use the word gender, I mean the range of social roles, personality traits, attitudes, behaviors, values, and relative power that society assigns to females, males, and other individuals. Gender is an identity that is learned. How we define gender changes over time and can vary within and across cultures. This podcast is recorded at my kitchen table and may contain sounds of life from my home and neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Episode 25. My guest today is Sophia. Sophia identifies as an American woman of South Asian heritage, as a child of immigrants, and in lighter situations as a brown woman. Sophia uses she, her pronouns. Hi, Sophia. Welcome to Your Own Voice. I am so pleased to have you here. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So can you start off by telling me, how do you identify? I identify as an American woman of South Asian heritage, as a child of immigrants, as someone who was born and raised in Chicago, although I don't live there anymore. It's sort of what I feel is the essence of me. And sometimes in lighter situations, I'll just call myself a brown woman. When in your life did you first become aware of different gender roles? I remember at a very early age having a strong sense that things in life are unfair. Like, I don't want to say a sense of injustice. It was because I was a child, a very small child. It was more of a sense of not fairness, right? And that's because I think being raised by Pakistani immigrants in a Pakistani immigrant community, I had one brother who was older than me by a few years. I didn't have any sisters. I had parents who were very sort of afraid of the you know, the influences of American society on their children that they chose to have in America. But anyway, from a very small age, I remember being told from, you know, four, five, six, um, you can't do these things because you're a girl. Your brother can do these things. It's fine. He can go out and play with his friends. He can go ride bikes. He can go to the arcade. You can't do any of that because you're a girl. And I don't remember the exact words or the exact incidents, but I have this, I remember having this sense of this is not fair. I didn't ask to be in this situation and sort of I hate everything. (laughs) Did you push back? I know that's a lot to ask for a little kid, but did you, did you say anything? I mean, as I grew up, yeah, the pushback came in different forms. One thing I do somewhat more clearly remember is It was the same message coming to me, but it changed a bit as I got older. But the message always started with, girls your age in Pakistan are doing X. Okay, so when I was young, it was, uh, why do you want to do that? Girls your age in Pakistan are, you know, making tea for the whole family. Or why are you sitting around watching cartoons? Girls your age in Pakistan are cooking dinner for the whole family. Girls your age in Pakistan are doing this. And I would be like, well, one, we're not in Pakistan. Two, I'm just doing my math homework because I'm trying to be a good kid. 
So, yeah, pretty aware of gender, uh, maybe not roles, but gender expectations from the community that I was blessed to be born into. Did I act out? Probably not as much as I should have. I think I probably just held it all in until I was old enough to just leave. What issues of gender do you confront in the workplace? Or is it a non-issue for you? Well, I've certainly experienced sort of those cliche things. They're not cliche, they're they're real. By cliche, I mean things that all women, I think, in the U.S. workplace have, have experienced. That moment where you express an idea in a meeting and no one really hears you, and then a man says the same thing and he's applauded for it. You know, sometimes I even lean into that. Sometimes I it gets so bad that I'm like, I don't, what's the point of even trying? And I'll just grab like the largest, the, <laughs> the tallest, whitest man with the loudest voice and be like, hey, can you say this for me? Hand him a note. You know, and that's a joke, but it's not that far from the truth. Uh, so that's frustrating. But I think that's something probably every woman goes through. I won't lie, I have become that person that enters a meeting room or an office and does a quick scan of the room. And it's not just for gender. I'm looking at uh, how many people of color there are, how many, but also women. And a part of me is like, oh, when did I become that person? But another part of me is like, everyone should be that person. You know, women often do, that people of color often do, where you're invited into an event or a panel discussion or a, even just to watch or, or a staff meeting or a, whatever it is. And the first thing you do is you scan the room and you're counting how many white men are there, how many white people are there versus people of color, how many men versus women are there. And you're sort of doing a little assessment. And I don't know if that's just... I think it's different for everyone. You might just pocket that information, you know, reflect on it. Or it might subconsciously affect the way you behave in that particular event or meeting. I didn't start doing this till much later because I grew up in a very multicultural environment. So diversity, like, was not an in-my-face issue as a kid. We were all, I grew up in a part of Chicago where you know, half my school, we were all sort of a UN of children of immigrants, right? We all knew how to, we all knew swear words in 25 languages. We all knew different food items from, and it wasn't like something we sat down and talked about. We didn't say, oh, tell me about your culture. We just knew, like, just to be something different was normal. And it wasn't until I got to college that I actually met someone. In college, my, one of my first friends was a young man from Wisconsin who, said to me quite openly, I've never known personally someone who's not white. He said, we have people in town where I'm from, but I don't know them personally. I've never in my life had a friendship or a relationship with someone who's not white. And to me, that blew my mind because I, what I said back to him is, I've never known, we're 17 at this point, 18, I've never known anyone who's never known anyone who's not white. And so he was like, tell me about your culture. I'm like, tell me about yours. Like, what is that like to, to not know anyone who's not white? It's just not where I came from. I've always been in this sort of multicultural setting. Yeah, so it wasn't until, you know, 
my 20s or 30s that I started doing this scanning the room thing. And I always have the same thought. I was like, yeah, I'm that person now. Why am I that person? Ugh, like that's annoying. But then very quickly after that, I was like, no, everyone should be doing this. Everyone should have this awareness. And it's because people don't have this awareness that we have rooms that look like this. Do you have any life goals or dreams that you chose not to pursue? And if so, do you think gender played a role in any of your decisions? I think a lot of the choices I made as a young person, as I was, you know, becoming an adult, were very highly influenced by that sense of not fairness that I felt as a kid and by this idea that I wanted to reject everything that I had grown up with, all of those cultural expectations. So as a young person, I started traveling a lot. I did jobs, internships, study abroad. And I think that was because as a kid, I was always told, you can't do these things. You can't be an independent person. You're a girl. Like you have to get married young and you have to, in girls your age in Pakistan are you know, X, Y, Z. And I wanted to just, you know, reject all of that and do what I want. But now I feel like my more recent choices in terms of the dreams I'm I'm pursuing now are not so much a sense of rejection because of gender expectations, but uh, more a decision to do those because I am a woman and because I feel like we need more women in these spaces. So more recently... A couple of years ago, I started moonlighting as a stand-up comedian uh, here in Washington, D.C. And in comedy, there are a lot of gender dynamics currently playing out, but also being discussed, at least in D.C., being discussed in a very conscious way and being addressed as best they can. Comedy is still a very male industry, there are a lot more women now than there were, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And there were definitely women that that pioneered that path. There are still a lot of people out there who just truly believe women aren't funny, uh, which is very unfortunate and sad. And it's still harder for women to become successful because of different expectations or barriers or just basically the way we behave and approach progress and opportunities is different and but worse but people are starting to talk about it now there's a group of women that meet women comedians here in dc once a month to talk about these things to talk about the business aspect of promoting yourself as a female comedian and it's very interesting we have guest speakers a woman booker of a of a major club in another state and she um, skyped in to talk to us and she said you know it's things we don't even realize sometimes as women and the thing that stuck with me about what she shared with us, she says, I get all these guys who have done stand-up comedy, have done open mics for like three months or six months, and I don't know them at all. They've never met me, and they'll call me up, they'll email me and, and ask for a headlining spot. A woman would never do that, but the guys just ask. You know, they got they they did one good open mic and they're like, I'm ready to feature. I'm ready to headline. And to us, that was all appalling. And I said, OK, well, what do we do with that information? Is the implication that we just we just need to act like these these men, these overconfident men? And she said, yeah, be aggressively confident. Um, so little things like that. And, it, and it's things we're starting to talk about. I don't know how much we're doing it, but 
women are more reluctant to ask for things like that, to, to say, you know, I'm good and I'm funny and I can headline your club. I can feature your club at your club. Uh, can I get a spot? Women are more likely to be like, well, you know, if I just like work and get better, they'll notice and somebody will ask me to do their show or I'm not good enough yet or whatever. And it's just a different way. And, you know, it has to be a conscious decision, I think, on the part of people who produce comedy shows as well as on the comedians themselves to make that change happen. I like to think it's happening very slowly locally in D.C., globally and nationally, different question, different dynamics happening. It's also happening there, but I can speak for what's happening in D.C. And there are a number of groups that are specifically organized with the intention of producing shows that highlight underrepresented voices in comedy, whether that's women or women identifying comics or non-binary comics or uh, people of color or or whatever it is. So there are a lot of these sort of shows being produced now. And, you know, the more people come out to support these shows, the more it will grab the attention of the more old school or traditional bookers and producers that say, oh, we need to represent some different voices. We need something more than like a lineup of 12 28-year-old white guys, which happens surprisingly still. <laughs> so, but we're working on it and I and I think good things are happening, just maybe a little slow. Touched upon this issue of confidence. Lack of confidence, fear of failure. Can you speak a little bit more about that whether it's in the comedy world or in other things that you've had to deal with? I think for women failure it comes with much higher stakes than for men, or at least it's perceived from within us as women as as being a much higher stake um, thing, right? Men, let's talk about comedy first, imagining and talking um, off the top of my head. But I, I think a lot of men that I've seen in comedy, if they have a bad set, they're like, it's a bad set. I bombed, whatever. Everyone bombs. And they're forgiven for it. Yeah, he's funny. I've seen him be funny other places. Um, you know, it was a bad audience etc. They brush it off, they compartmentalize. For women, because we are, you know, consciously trying to make um, make our way in this industry and, to, and uh, maybe, again, I'm not speaking for all women, but if I speak for myself, if, if I'm trying to prove to the world or to the local scene that, yes, women are funny, brown women are funny, I'm funny, I can make this room laugh, the stakes are much higher if I have a bad audience or if I have if I bomb, because what happens in my head then is now all these people are going to be confirmed in their opinion that, yeah, see, women aren't funny. She wasn't that funny. She was all right. But the fact is, every comic has a bad set. Everybody bombs. Everybody comes across a bad audience. What I think, the thoughts that that consume me in my head is that I will... I will not be forgiven for it as easily because there aren't a lot of me out there. There aren't a lot of women doing comedy. There aren't a lot of brown women doing comedy. I'm always worried, will I be judged for this identity that I represent rather than for a tough audience or a bad you know, setup for the show or whatever other reasons that contribute to people bombing? And there are a million of them. So I, I just feel like when I think about failure in, in not only in comedy, but earlier throughout the whole course of my life that I've spoken about, in my head and in my heart, it feels like a really big deal, perhaps more than uh, what it would feel like to a man. And if, you know, the same thing goes, if I think about earlier in my life and I spent, rightly or wrongly, spent 
the majority of my life trying to reject these expectations of myself. No. Now the idea of rejecting those expectations comes hand in hand with the idea of proving to the, to that community, um, that I can do something different, that I can't, you know, proving myself as something different from what they're expecting and that that's okay. If I fail in any one of those at every step that I fail, um, that lessens my ability to, and my credibility to branch off from those expectations, from that culture, you know? If I choose a career path that's not one that's acceptable for a Pakistani woman from the eyes of the culture, and I don't continue, and I don't succeed in it, you know, the response is going to be, see, that's why you shouldn't have done it, because you can't, because you're you're a woman, and women like you should be doing X, Y, Z. Yes, I, for one, as a woman, carry a lot of fear of failure, because to me, it feels like a much bigger deal than it should. And I know it's not right, but it's there. And it's a hard habit to break. It's a hard mindset to break out of. Just because when you're trying to prove something, and maybe that's the first the first thing I need to let go of. I know I don't need to prove myself to anyone, but I do, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, well, first of all, thank you. This is hard stuff to talk yeah. about, and I really appreciate it. And I'd like to respond to that. I heard a radio story the other day about somebody who was talking to hospice workers, people who were, you know, their job was to be with people at the end of life. And one of the things that was said in this interview that really touched me deeply was that the people who died peacefully were the ones who died without regret when they talked about what did that mean dying without regret it wasn't regretting that they hadn't accomplished something it was the people who regretted not trying that those who tried and failed were at peace because they at least knew they had given it their best shot it was those who had a dream or wanted to pursue something but never did those were the ones who really struggled the most with the end of life. I like to think that I've never held back from trying anything because of the fear of failure. Uh, I think I've failed at a lot of things I've done, or at least I felt I felt like they were failures. But I think because I feel such higher stakes around failure that I carry those failures with me for a lot longer, a sense of guilt, a sense of shame, a sense of... I'm not succeeding in improving myself or in rejecting those cultural expectations. When you spend your whole life motivated by rejecting what's expected of you, which is not, by the way, a healthy way to live your life, I understand that. But when that is sort of like your core motivating factor, your whole life, and then this this sense, this desire to prove yourself as something else, and you fail at something, then that just hits really hard. And, you know, I've definitely gone through those failures. I understand intellectually, you know, and creatively that failure is a part of the process. But when those are your motivations, I think those failures stay with you for for a lot longer than than someone who's like, let me try this and see. But I keep going back to this this piece of guidance we were given as, as female com- comedians to be aggressively confident. 
And I wrote it down in big letters in my notebook when I heard it, I wrote aggressive confidence. And I, I feel like I should read that every morning, you know, after I wake up, before I start my day, be aggressively confident. But at the same time, I know that in the world we live in, women who have been aggressively confident are often labeled negatively as bossy or difficult or much worse. Because the first thing I thought when I was given that advice, that men are aggressively confident, you guys need to be the same way. And unfortunately, when you hear guidance like that, it often comes off as act more like men. But I don't think that's the right message necessarily. I, I don't want women everywhere to be acting like men because that won't be good for the world at all. I think it needs to be a more clear, more nuanced piece of guidance that says, be a confident woman. And there's a difference there. What I would love to see, and I don't know how this is going to happen, but in a perfect world, I think the rest of the world would come around and realize that women act differently. And in fact, the way women behave and operate might be more beneficial to the world at large. We should all respond differently to the way women behave and encourage that as well. But at the moment, I think <laughs> act like men is what's going to get us advances, at least in the short term. I don't know. I hope that's not true, though. It sounds like with a lot of areas right now, we have an opportunity for some discernment. Look at what we want to see in an ideal world and then figure out how much am I willing to to behave in this way, but know that if I go too far, that's not true to who I am. Mm -hmm. And it's this is this is not black or white. I mean, so you're talking about some very, very important, but some very, very complex stuff. And I really, you know, I really appreciate you sharing those thoughts because I think a lot of folks, it's probably it may not be as stark as it is in the mm -hmm. comedy world, but I, I think what you've said can be adapted very easily to other professions, other workplaces. And it's also a sense of responsibility, right? Like when you're, you know, forget being a person of color, that just adds to the same point. But when you're one of a few, when you're one of two women on a lineup, on a show among 12 guys, 12 guys and two women, you know, the world is looking at you. The audience is looking at you. The bookers are looking at you. The other comics are looking at you. To represent your gender. I mean, it shouldn't be that way. No one's looking at the men saying, oh, he bombed. Therefore, all men must be terribly terrible at comedy. Therefore, all men must do gutter humor. Therefore, all you know, men aren't funny. But with women, that's what happens. Right. If you only have two women on a show with 14 people, two women and 12 men, if those women don't do well, that audience, that whole room is going to walk out being like, yeah, I knew women weren't funny. What they say is right. They were just okay. But the other, but the guys were all hilarious. Well, you know what? There were a lot more guys and they weren't all hilarious. You're just remembering them because there were more of them. Uh, you know, the failure hits harder because we carry with us a sense of responsibility, f you know, rightly or wrongly. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way, but I feel that way. Uh, and then add to it that, that I'm a brown woman, um, and, you know, I feel like it, a responsibility to represent that idea of being aggressively confident has a lot to unpack behind it. It is a good bit of guidance, I think, but we, we, all, we still have to be careful. Is there something you'd like to see everyday people do to make a change around gender? 
for one, I've long believed that um, we as a society should make it more normal to speak about women's health issues. And we can extrapolate that to, to other gender identities, but speaking for myself, it should be normal to speak about menstruation in mixed company. Uh, everyone knows it happens. It happens to half the population. It shouldn't be something shameful. And particularly in a culture that I come from, that's that's even more ashamed of this stuff. I want people to be talking more about it and spreading awareness of what's normal, what's not normal, and what the issues are and, and how poor the healthcare for women is in our country. Anyway, that's a whole nother podcast topic. I often think you know, women and girls should just be celebrated more. And I and I think back, you know, and I ask myself, what could have made me happier as a kid? And I think if if people around me and my family and my community and my culture, you know, had more of an attitude of, of this is why it's awesome and beautiful and amazing to be a woman. This is what's what's great about being a girl. This is why you're special in your gender, in your, you know, then, you know, I wouldn't have been as angry. I wouldn't have, you know, had the grown up with the issues I did. All I heard as a kid was, here's what you cannot do because you're a girl and it's not acceptable. If someone had just said, but here are all the great things you can do because you're a girl and that you should do because you're a girl, it's a whole different perspective. So is there anything else you'd like to add either on something that we discussed earlier or on a topic I didn't yet raise? I would love to see more awareness in general, but particularly among the other half of our population, among the men, but more awareness on just how difficult it can be to be a woman in this world, in America, in other countries, even more so. But in America, I mean, it's a different kind of difficulty. We have these little, I don't know if you want to call them microaggressions or to use the latest buzzwords, but these little challenges that add up. The fact that we pay more for our, that that our feminine products are taxed, that we pay more for the same products because they're in pink and branded for women. I mean, I, I don't know, and I, I often wonder when I read about these things and become aware of these things, I'm like, why is not every woman walking around in a complete rage 100% of the time? It's because it's not at the forefront of our awareness. It's not something we're consciously thinking about all the time. It's these like secret things that we choose to, we're either not aware of in the first place or we're like, "Mm, it's just how it's been. We got to deal with it. No, we don't have to deal with it. Um, Why are bras so expensive? We all wear them. We all need them. Why are they so expensive? I hate to say this. I think we have to be more angry at times. Uh, I don't want to be an angry person all the time. I really don't. But I do want to be confident. And I do want things to be more discussed and awareness to be raised about, you know, people don't know these things. A lot of men don't know these things. And we need to include them in the conversation, of course. There is a powerful purpose behind anger. Mm. And that I don't think the answer is to not be angry. I think the answer is to be constructively angry and to find constructive avenues. Because anger, I think it's vital 
It's that's how oftentimes that's how change gets sparked. That people are not willing to take risks or really do something different. People don't change if they're comfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if people are comfortable, nothing changes. And sometimes anger is the exact motivation necessary. The challenge is to not get stuck in our anger, rather to use it as fuel. Let's use that anger to fuel action and change as opposed to either taking it out on other people or even just as bad taking it out on ourselves. That's that's how I respond to that. Absolutely. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I do think when, when you add up all the things we deal with, even as American women, which again is like one of the most privileged kind of women we can be, and it's still very difficult here, just the fact that we can't walk on the street without you know, having some anxiety of, you know, a world of possibilities that can happen to you, things that can happen to you. The fact that um, it's just something that's always on our mind. And again, I think we should all be in a rage all the time. I don't advocate for that, but I, it's shocking to me that we're not. I, my current work situation, I sit on a team of maybe five or six women and one man. And we were starting a meeting one day and the women were there. The the man had not shown up yet. And we were talking about shoes. It wasn't even a shameful thing. It was about shoe shopping. And we were talking about each other's shoes. Men do it too, whatever. And the man on our team walked in and one of the women said, oh, sorry, this this is women's stuff. We'll stop talking now. And I just thought... Why did we have to stop talking about shoes? Because one man walked in. There are seven of us and six of us. We're the majority. And this guy walks in and you're like, oh, sorry, we don't have to keep talking about this. No, let's talk about menstruation. Let's talk about bras. Let's talk about, you know, ovaries. I don't know. Like, we shouldn't be ashamed because one man walks in and we have to stop our conversations. Doesn't make sense. There is good reason to be angry. There is good, good reason to be angry. And I think it takes a lot of courage to come and come on a podcast. I mean, just even talk to another person, but to talk in this forum. It's my sincere hope that somebody listening can know that they're not alone in facing and feeling this kind of stuff. And I just want to thank you so much for coming over and talking with me today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And I I often think that there's a fine line between bravery and foolishness, but hopefully we didn't cross that line because I do comedy. People say, oh, that's so brave of you. And I say, well, it's either very brave or incredibly foolish, but one or the other, it's a fun time. You've been listening to Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender experience and perspective. Your Own Voice is produced by me, Amy Breslow, with IT support from Alex Moreno and is registered with ProtectRite, music by Kevin McLeod. If you have comments or questions you'd like addressed on the show, please submit them on the website, yourownvoice.org contact. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, I invite you to check out my Patreon page, patreon.com, your own voice podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I'll be back in two weeks with the next episode. Until then, take care and be well.